Hello, I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Stoned Ape Reports, where I have conversations with those who have changed their lives with the power of psychedelics. Warning, this episode contains graphic sexual trauma content. Please note, if you're considering working with psychedelics, stay safe and stay legal. Do your research, understand contraindications, test all your substances. Psychedelics are not for everybody. In a quick announcement, I now have a book out titled The Grief Trip, How I Learned to Heal with Grief and Psychedelics. You can find it at thegrieftrip.com. 100% of proceeds go to the Ian Preston Memorial Fund to help support mental health and suicide prevention. Okay, in this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Karen O'Neill. We talked about her work with Ibogaine to help in her battle with bulimia, as well as the sexual trauma underneath that bulimia, and her continued work in helping others work through their eating disorders with the help of plant medicines. It's truly a unique story of healing with the aid of psychedelics. So please enjoy this conversation with Karen. All right, Karen. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on the Stone Dave Reports. Um, you know, a mutual friend of ours connected us, and I'm really excited to hear your story because I think it's uh, truly a unique one. So first of all, thanks for coming on here and doing this. Oh, I'm glad to be here. You've had some esteemed people on the show. I'm glad to be in the crowd. Well, thank you. Yeah, we've had a variety of people, and they're all just as awesome as each other because um, everybody's got an amazing story to tell. So I know what I like to do is is ask people kind of what was the challenge they were dealing with in life um, and then go, go into how psychedelics helped. So I already know your challenge, but tell us what your challenge is and, and, and how bad it was and what, what your life was like before you came up upon, you know, this unique solution. That's, that's wonderful. That's a perfect way for me to jump into this. So I found the only addiction that would work for me. And that was bulimia. And that was basically using food to numb my emotions, anything unpleasant, or even sometimes pleasant. That was my go to thing. So for 35 years, I was binging and purging sometimes up to 10 times a day, every two hours. So the addiction was not the purging. The addiction was the food and always being one bite away from a binge. Now food is medicine, right? I mean, everything we do is medicine. And so food is an integral part of our culture, whether it's our meals that we have with our family or a wedding or a bar mitzvah or any kind of occasion ever, there's always food there. So it's a matter of being able to manage it. And unlike drugs or alcohol, someone that has bulimia and everyone listening to this knows and loves at least five people that have it. And you don't have any idea because we're really good at hiding it. You know, oh. no one wants to be thought of with their head over the toilet and their finger down their throat. It, it's repellent and it should be. But that keeps us in the closet like, no, 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 just believe what I'm showing you, you know, that I'm perfectly put together, that I'm attractive, that I'm not hugely overweight that I, you know, that I have myself together. I don't want you to see that secret shame inside of me. Mm. So this was my life and for 35 years, and I did all the usual things that our Western culture tells us to do after about nine years, kind of fell apart on the job one day. I'm a graphic designer and I couldn't do the simplest thing that I knew how to do in my sleep. And I just realized I needed to get some help. So I got some inpatient care. I got some, Oh, I was put on SSRIs. This was back in the late 80s when Prozac was making, you know, its first show and Mm -hmm. and all of the chemical cousins that followed. I went to 12-step groups. I went to group therapy, individual therapy, hypnosis, all kinds of, you know, everything you can think of. I didn't know about plant medicine. Well, of course, I had done 
you know, LSD and mushrooms in my 20s, but I right. had no idea that they were sacred medicines and that they could help. You mm. know, yeah, I had a mm -hmm. fun time and I don't think I ever mixed them with alcohol because I wasn't a rave type person, but I didn't know anything about that. So this was my life for 35 years. I had three husbands, one child, a series of relationships, lost a few jobs here and there because although I was good at what I did and showed up well, eventually, I mean, think about what's happening to the brain when you're purging all the time. Your electrolytes are messed up. Your body chemistry is messed up because the brain is getting screwed up signals. When you're, oh. when you're, stomach is empty usually within two hours you're hungry again so then it would start all over again it's wow. about being one bite away from a binge so i like to say that it is like heroin addiction without the withdrawals you know without the physical withdrawals but with the, yeah the ups i mean and the there downs are some physical the, the, things to it for sure but yeah. the mental withdrawals are really the biggest part of giving up an addiction so, you know, that goes for alcohol, that goes for benzos, that goes for any kind of drug you can think of, any kind of substance or behavior that is causing a big problem in your life. When you stop it, you have to find a new way to manage the emotions. So how, how, does, how does this affect your life? I mean, obviously, when you look at somebody with a kind of a chemical addiction, you can see that, you know, they, they don't show up to work or they, they commit crimes or they do something that has, you know, with their family, their love life, it really has a negative effect. How did, how did your bulimia affect your, your day-to-day -day life? Bulimics tend to be higher functioning, kind of like alcoholics. By mm. and large, we are not people that have lived on the street or out of our cars because we always have a good story and a smile on our face to sell, you know, whatever it is yeah. we need do. Whereas with drug addiction, it can take you all the way to meth temp, you know, camp cities yeah. and, you know, and that. So that I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I just haven't encountered it with all the it's people. More of an internal with. struggle. Yeah. And it's about, you know, what I was saying earlier, believe what I'm showing you, not my, not my deep self-loathing that I have inside. But, yeah. there, you know, I would be late for work and I would be, you know, late for lunch and every day, you know, on a regular job, it was like, okay, well, how, like any other addict, how am I going to get this? How am I going to pay for it? Because this is adding up. What's my story if I get caught? Where am I going to eliminate it where someone won't be heard? You know, where, mm -hmm. where someone won't hear me because, you know, I'm, you know, this was like started back in the early 80s for me and, <laughs> to get a little graphic, there weren't fans in bathrooms then. There weren't, mm. you know, the low water toilets. So from a practical level, it was a lot harder to get away with than it would be if I were doing that now. And, and by the way, I've been free of this pretty close to four years. Well, so, good, um, good for you. And that was thanks to the Ibogaine, which is what we're here to talk about. Yeah. So what? So how did you even find Ibogaine? What, what made you think that would be the solution? <laughs> As it happened, my ex-partner was an Uber driver and he picked up a kid in Portland, which is where I'm from and where we lived at the time. He just mentioned that he had done this for heroin and that he had mm. gone to Mexico to a clinic and he had been a heroin addict for six years. And he was very young. He was 23. I'm like, Ooh, okay. Hey, you need to find this guy, you know, because yes. he almost didn't mention it to me. Find this guy. I need to know more. I'll do this tonight because for the first time in my life, and I was 55 years old at the time, Three days mm. earlier, I'd been in the garage with the car running, thinking is like, that's it. I just can't do this anymore. Mm. And it's, it's really unusual for someone to be suicidal that late in life. But I'd been struggling with this for so, so long. 
And back in the day when I went to counseling, I say I went to counseling in, in, in the early 90s and I did, but nobody knew about eating disorders then. You know, the doctors right. didn't know. There was all this judgment. Like, why in the hell would you do that? What's wrong with you? Oh, thank you for doubling down on the shame, you know, because this is just normal for me now, you know? Yeah. And there was a complete lack, not really of compassion, but of understanding. And that has changed in the last 30 years, thankfully. Yes, thankfully. So this kid so I just did some brought this idea home. This. Yeah, and so you yeah. started researching it. Yeah, and I had about a week to prepare. And then, and then I had my treatment. And I, I've had this treatment twice. The first time I was told very clearly, this is not a magic pill. This mm -hmm. is not a cure. I'm like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. But honestly, I really wanted it to be. And this is typical of some of the clients that I've worked with because I've worked with some eating disorder people. And these are the people I really want to work with because I'm the only person out there that knows how to, well, not knows how to do it, but I've developed a protocol on how to do it that worked for me, but also works individually with each client to find out what works for them in terms of the pre-care before I even meet them, you know, working mm -hmm. on some journaling exercises, the treatment itself, and I'm with them at their side the whole time, and then the aftercare to really develop that, co-create that new relationship with food because it has to be managed. If you don't eat, then you're anorexic and then you have a whole whole other problem. Whereas yeah. with alcohol and drugs, you don't have to do that. And I'm not saying it's easy to give it up. It's hard and it's horrible. Okay. But with food, it is different that it has to be managed in and not controlled, but just this new relationship where it becomes symbiotic. So, okay. I so you, you are a, uh, so you see my clients and work with them. Are you a, a therapist of some kind? I, I'm a recovery coach. And after I did this treatment the second time, about six months later, I went to volunteer at a new Ibogaine aftercare clinic in south of Ensenada in Baja, California, the peninsula. The, the peninsula is to Mexico what Alaska and Hawaii are to the United States. It's like, mm. yeah, okay, you know, they're part of the country, but not really. So yeah, yeah. there's some freedoms there. You don't need a passport to go there like you do the rest of Mexico. Um, okay. So that is really good news for people that want to come. So I went to work at this aftercare place just to basically hijack some aftercare for myself. I said, hey, 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 friend of mine was, you know, co-opening this place. I'm like, number one, Michael, why didn't you tell me that you're opening this? And number two, when can I come? He's like, get in your car and come now. So first I had to do a bunch of brochures, being a graphic designer and, you know, help with the social media and everything. And then I got in my car from Portland and I had 10 days to do all of this. And it, I just started learning and I was this was after my second treatment. So I was only maybe six or seven months free of it. Still way too intense and way too in the, I have to control everything state of mind, which by the way, yeah. I'm still, still there. This is my lifelong, you know, journey yeah. that I have to deal with myself, but I just, yeah, met there's a always going to be people. things to deal with that. Um, so let's, but let's just jump back real quick and, and tell us about, so you heard about Ibogaine, from this Uber driver, you did your research and you said a week later you were heading into doing some I of these. Was in, this, I was in this, treatment. And so you I had basically two, two big experiences. Yes. Yes. So, now the first one was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. And I had the best care I could imagine. Someone was checking on me every 20 minutes. I had really good pre-care, knew what to expect. It was, and, and this person isn't in business anymore uh, mm -hmm. because this, this happens a lot. Clinics, they come and go. Uh, for a whole lot of reasons, usually financial. Uh, anyway, mm. 
I had this treatment and it was clear and concise and it actually took more medicine than they anticipated to give to me because as my provider said, there's some part of you, I I was feeling it, but I wasn't having the visions. And by the way, not everybody gets visions, but, but my provider felt it was very important for me to have these. And so he, he dosed me some more and some more. And the first thing I noticed was spirit animals. Hmm bunch of you know big cats you know panthers yeah, and lions and, okay. yeah and a cobra and then um uh is it a salamander or a lizard but i don't know you know the green thing that's yeah, a yeah. good the shamans say that's a good sign when you see that that leads you on a successful journey and nice. the first after that passed and by then i've relaxed into it and each time i noticed I was taking two pills every 20 minutes. And each time I would, I was laying flat on the bed. Something told me internally, just lay down, be as symmetrical as you can. I even had the room symmetrical. So, you know, it was balanced. I don't know why that wasn't something that I'd ever thought of before. Not the way that I feng feng shuied my life or anything like that, but something told me it was important to do that. And every time I would feel it hit my bloodstream, the first time it startled me a little bit, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid. I'm generally kind of fearless. Mm-hmm. But right before I took the first couple of pills, pills, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm scared. I'm scared. And, and he's like, don't worry. It's going to be fine. This is all the way it's meant to be. You know, it's good. So I took it and I would feel it hit my bloodstream and it was, I'd feel my respiration, my heartbeat, everything go down. Like, mm. Okay. So when I would take the next set of pills 20 minutes later, it's okay. It's like downshifting in a stick shift. You know, don't worry, it's all yeah. good. And then I slid into the experience where I told you I was seeing the spirit animals. And the next thing that I saw was now Iboga Ibogaine is the grandfather, known as the grandfather of all psychoactive medicines. And it's known as a stern grandfather. So mm. not particularly gentle and loving, but, you know, listen, son, you, know, right. you need to look at what you've done. So the first vision I saw was, culverts of vomit coming out of uh, probably a 10 by 10, you know, uh, circumference pipe. And and I knew it was my vomit. Okay. I knew it was mine. And right after that, I saw kind of like the national geographic specials we've all seen where there's sinkholes going into the earth. Right. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I saw that. And again, it was my own vomit and the medicine was telling me in images, this is where your life where your devotion has gone. This is what you have to show for it. I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, and and at no point did I feel shame because I was detached emotionally. And I should say also throughout the whole experience in the upper left-hand corner, when your eyes are closed is when you have the visions in the upper left-hand corner of the blackness of the, let's call it the film screen. There was a graphic of my brain and I could see the medicine working through every area of the brain. Wow. Yeah, and that stayed there the whole time, all six hours. And as the visions faded, that faded, but it was still there. So it showed me. And I think that this happened because I'm a graphic designer. I'm used to thinking in words and images and how to combine them in order to convey an idea. I've been a graphic designer since I was 20 years old. So, you know, it's pretty hardwired for me at this point. Yeah. So then it started to show me car crashes. And I've never been in a car crash any, any more than someone maybe in a parking lot hitting me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, that was probably 40 years ago. So that was kind of symbolic again of what I was doing with my life. And I didn't know any better. I told it to stop and it stopped. 
stop mm. showing me the horrible things. Then it started showing me life lessons, things that I needed to do, things that we all know to do. And it was the big black red letters against the black background, aerial black font probably. And it was just saying things like pay your bills on time, work out every day, love your family, speak your truth. Probably a series of 15 lessons like that that flashed. Wow. And at this point, I started playing with the medicine. I realized I could control it since I told it to stop showing me the scary stuff, which, by the way, I wish I hadn't done. And I wish I knew not to do that. Right. But I realized I could play with it a little bit. So I would say a word out loud, like dog. Okay. And it would either show me a picture of a dog or the letter dog. And then mm. it would be like big in front of me. And then it would like fade dog, 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 and get smaller and smaller and like fade out to the right. So that's how it was for me. And then from that point, it just took me into a series of memories of things that happened to me when I was a child. And some of them were meaningful and others were, I'm in second grade and I'm passing a note in class. <laughs> Oh. I'm like, I remember reading. I remember that. <laughs> Again, was there, no was there anything tied to any kind of trauma? I mean, was there was there any kind of trauma behind your bulimia? There is, but there was nothing that I didn't know. I was kind of expecting to see a film of what I suspect happened mm -hmm. because the thing with bulimia, particularly bulimia over other eating disorders, it has sexual trauma rooted to childhood or youth of uh, and I'm sorry if this is too much information, but if it happened, we can talk about it, right? Right. So yep. it's forced oral sex on someone mm. that doesn't want it. So it's a reenactment, which is, you know, in a very messed up way saying, I will control what goes in and out of my body. Mm. And with, with the purging after, you know, having five pounds of food and, you know, being, you know, out four inches, you know, bigger than I would normally be, there's that. And the, the purging is not pleasant, but there's that brain chemical reaction of feeling good again, right? Yeah. And there is that feeling of being clean. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of like, and wow. someone told me this much later because a friend of mine, I didn't purge throughout my Ibogaine treatments, either one of them. And really? most people do, a lot of them do, if they're doing a flood dose, a high dose. So I think that, ha that was very specific for me. It's like, hey, you're done with this. You, know, you don't, you know, you're you're done with the purging part. You're just going to not do that anymore. You're just going mm -hmm. to live a better life now. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. When yeah. it was over, it was very scientific. Now I expected it to be spiritual. And I expected to talk to dead relatives. I expected mm -hmm. the memory of what my grandfather did to me because as a kid, I had a photographic memory, especially when I was younger. So like, I remember everything that happened, big mm. blank spot on the tape. And then I remember how I felt afterward. Yeah. Okay. So not enough to put anybody in prison. Right. But enough for me to figure out. And there's a history of him doing this to other members of the family who blocked it out and therefore couldn't protect me and my sister. Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I know this is very graphic and, and hard to hear yet it happened. It still happens to people and it has these kinds of effects on people now. And I could have just as easily become a drug addict, but it just happens that I can't tolerate drugs very well. Yeah. So yeah, that didn't work. And alcohol, 
nah, I can't really drink that much before my stomach really hurts or, you know, I or have really bad physical effects that other people wouldn't with that amount of alcohol, you know? So with the bulimia, I had not, I've got no physical after effects from it other than losing some teeth and wearing some partial dentures. You know, my yeah. heart's fine. My esophagus fine. Pancreas liver, yeah. all good, all good. Whereas good. someone else would have died a long time ago. Yeah. It's pretty brutal. It is. It, it, and I did it to myself. Mm-hmm. You know? I did it to yeah. myself and it, and it made sense. It made sense to me to do that. Right. Yeah. That's the twisted thing. Does it make sense? So what, what about this, uh, the hard second trip? So what this, the, what the first trip did was I was in a toxic relationship at the time mm-hmm. where I was, it's pretty hard to make changes, especially from a, a really long-term hardcore addiction within a relationship period, let alone one that is not healthy. So I was along with the way I came into the relationship bulimic and, you know, please believe what I'm showing you, not what I'm hiding. I was stuck in a pattern of proving my worth to this person because Mm -hmm. all of the qualities I had that are good qualities. He's like, yeah, that's great. But I need you to have these other 30 qualities that you don't, you know, And so I was always stuck in that, in that cycle. So I was clean by that. I mean, binge and purge free for six weeks, which doesn't sound like much, but at that point it had been 32 years of binging and purging almost every day where if I didn't binge and purge, I was white knuckling through it and maybe I'd string together a day or two here and there, but it's honestly white knuckling is no way to live. It just, you might as well do it. You know, you might as well do the drugs, drink the alcohol, you know, binge and purge, whatever, you know, your poison is you might as well do it if you have to work that hard to not do it. Mm. So um, I was clean for six weeks. And the first time I purged, I hadn't binged. I was just uncomfortably full, which would have passed in an hour. But for some reason that day, and it was very difficult to do that the first time because I had changed, you know, the molecule had changed me, the medicine Mm -hmm. had changed me, but I did. And then it happened a little more, a little more within six months, it degraded down to probably worse than it had ever been before. And that went on for about another two years. So the second time when I did it, it was really horrible. (laughs) It was not the clean, wonderful experience I had before it was all in cartoons. And I know this is not a popular opinion, but I'm not real fond of cartoons, particularly Mm -hmm. Disney cartoons. Yeah. And it was Aladdin, you know, princes and princesses. And unlike my prior experience and most people's experience, opening my eyes, the the visions were still there. So I was like, oh, damn, I can't even get a break from this. Mm. Now, at the time, I was having a conflict with my sister who is, we're very close, still now, but there was about a year where we didn't speak to each other and we're different in that I'm pragmatic. I've got my feet on the ground. I'm, you know, the practical one and she's the one that's floating above the ground and she's more of a Disneyland person. And, and me, I just got Disneyland's phony and fake. I'd rather go on a hike or go whitewater rafting or something, Mm -hmm. you know, go camping. So anyway, everything was shown to me in this And because it was so horrifying, I didn't even take the full dose. And it was just showing me, I, it literally, I saw a CD go into a player and it played a loop of some things. And again, I got the life lessons 
<laughs> that I did yeah. before. You know, those, but this time the font was in a Disney font, pink and very, very tiny. And so I couldn't huh. read it. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I need some glasses. And then I remember thinking how silly that was, like that was going to help anything. <laughs> so I have no idea what the life, life lessons were, but it just played a series of of things. The very first image I saw was not in a cartoon, but either my son or grandson, the O'Neills, we all look alike. It could have been me for all I know, but playing a drum, you know, playing a drum really fiercely. And then it just jumped into this cartoon thing. And the whole time I was like, God, I need this to be over. I need this to be over. Well, the difference was I, I went out into the hallway and I was found in the hallway, rocking myself, sitting on the floor, rocking myself. And I felt like my diaphragm was down you know, crunched down to about two or three inches and I couldn't breathe. Mm. Now I knew I could, I knew this was just, you know, part of the psychoactive part of it. I knew I mm -hmm. could breathe, but I decided that I'm not taking the rest of the medicine. So I had about three quarters of the dose and I told myself, I don't ever want to fucking do this medicine again. <laughs> All right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that meant that I really needed to do everything, you know, to not be binging and purging anymore and right. to do whatever it took in order to make that happen. And that was what did the trick. It was a horrible, horrible experience compared to the first one, but it did the trick. And I left the relationship shortly after that. And, and that was, you know, went to Mexico just to volunteer. I was going to just go for three months. I sublet my apartment and then I extended it another three months because I was hijacking, I was the cook and I was hijacking the aftercare. Like, oh, I get to do yoga and breath work and go horseback riding and go to the hot springs yeah. and go swimming. And, you know, this is kind of, I need a total break from my life. I always knew after my first Ibogaine experience that I would probably do something different, like go volunteer to ayahuasca camp or something, you know. And yeah. I just ended up staying. The relationship ended. Uh, well, he moved in with someone and kind of forgot to tell me about that. Oh. <laughs> I know. But um, then I was just earning my stripes and learning about the medicine and learning about aftercare and getting my certification in recovery coaching with Being True to You, which is the only life coaching program that I know of that includes the use of psychedelics as a recovery tool. Mm. You know, as a tool nice. of transformation. Yeah, that's like the last module that you learn. And really, really, a really rigorous program, really good stuff. And I found it to be really helpful with the work I was doing. So I had it in administrative roles. Sometimes I was cleaning toilets or cooking, but, you know, I just, and I got into sales. And after doing that kind of work, then that place closed and I worked, I came back to Oregon for the summer and I went back and worked for some friends that I had met through working through this original place because it's all interrelated. Everybody knows everybody down there. Hmm. And names may change, you know, centers may change, right. but I, I'm aligned with some people that I've, I've worked with now for close to three years and just feel really good about it. So I don't work for them nice. full time anymore. I want to specialize and I am specializing in the eating disorder part of it, which means, you know, shouting from the rooftops like I am right now with you yeah. and to whoever will be listening to this, that Ibogaine works for bulimia also. And first of all, know that it works for it's known if anybody knows about it, they know about it with opiate addiction because it almost every time eliminates withdrawals and cravings wow. temporarily, you know, know that this works temporarily for like 30, 60, 90 days. And you can take boosters to keep that going. But if you don't do the work behind it, the personal work that 
Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to do. This is why we, you know, have these behaviors so we don't have to feel the pain of whatever it is we're trying to forget or yeah. understand. But when you do that work, when you do the shadow work and integrate it into yourself, because it's really all about love, you know, it's really all about self-love, then then we have a chance. Yeah, exactly. So that's what you're doing now. You're working. What is the the exact title? You say it's recovery coach? Oh, I I don't really have a title for myself, but yeah, a transformational recovery coach. Um, Yeah. And so you're working with people, are you working with people who come through um, the centers? A specific center. Mostly I've I've worked with people privately where I would hire, rent an Airbnb, hire a doctor, a nurse, paramedic, and do the treatment with them. Mm-hmm. say in in Rosarito, which is closer to the border, closer to San Diego. But that is only for about a week to 10 days maximum. And I feel it's better to come to a center where there's a program where mm-hmm. it's where it's custom, you know, custom created for the medicine part is custom created for each person as they go through there versus a flood dose. So the people yeah. I work with do low to medium blood doses. We do the medical testing. We do all of that because if your heart isn't good, if your liver is not good, you can't do a high flood dose. It's just, it can be fatal. Mm. So yeah, I'm glad it, you guys are doing that. And that's the kind of thing that people should know for their own harm reduction. This is not something you just order on the dark web and do it in a, in a dark room by yourself. These, the Ibogaine deaths you hear of, it's either from that people thinking they can do it themselves mm-hmm. and they're really taking a chance. There could be something undetected in their, in their body that they don't know about. Yeah. Um, it also could be someone that goes to do a, a flood and go, what we call flood and goes. That's someone that comes to a clinic in, in Mexico where I live and work, but it could be anywhere. But generally people come to Mexico from the States that they are in and out in three days. So it's no personal attention. And then boom, you're back on an airplane going right back home to the same environment that triggers you, you know, the yeah. same issues that we all have, our relationships, our work, traffic, you know, paying our bills, um, trying to prove to our family that we're, who's sick of our bullshit, right? That yeah. we, we can be trusted when we can't even trust ourselves, you know? Mm. So how can, how can we prove ourselves after three days? You know, it can't be done. So those people, you know, are more likely to relapse. And a lot of them, they will just come because they're pressured ultimatum from work or a spouse or children or something. And they're not really ready and doing it yeah. for themselves. And so as soon as they leave, they use their normal dose again. Well, I began to such a powerful detoxifier that it would be like if you or I did the same thing, you know, you're really risking, you're going to have an adverse event and you could die. Yeah, man. So that's, it's not necessarily directly the ibogaine. It's it's the the detoxed body going out and thinking it can do the same old addict. I would dose. say it's very rarely, hardly ever, almost never, never say never, right? But it's either mm. someone used right away or proper medical testing wasn't done or an inexperienced provider didn't know what they were doing and they were literally had someone's life in their hands that they shouldn't have had. And the, the client was so desperate that they were willing to do anything. So in addition to finding a legitimate center that will do the full process like you're talking about and not the flow and go and, you know, they'll do the medical testing. Somebody out there who's listening that may be um, struggling with bulimia or another eating disorder and is considering Ibogaine, what what would you want to tell that person? If that person was to ask you, hey, Karen, I'm, I'm thinking about doing what you did, 
what what advice would you have for them to make sure that they kind of did it right and found the the right process? Well, if it was for an eating disorder, I'm going to tell them come to me because all the other places they're used to treating drug addicts and alcoholics. So they're not going to really understand how to properly care, you know, how to properly Mm -hmm. safeguard them. So that, that's the big thing. Um, And I would also say, I I do say, because I make sales calls quite often. I say, wait until you're ready. You know, this is going to cost a little bit of money. You've got travel time. There's fixed costs that can't be lowered. Really wait until you're ready until you're really ready to do the work. And if it's a parent that I'm talking to, I say, they should be on their knees crying. You know, I mean, you want to see tears because that gives them the best chance of it working. So it, it, really, for help. it really isn't for everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. and it also works best. Uh, or I've noted in my personal experience that people that have tried everything, lather, rinse, repeat for years and years, maybe decades, mm-hmm. it, it works better for those people because they've, they've kind of given up. They've kind of mm. given up. And so here's something that makes it easier for them to do. Not that it fixes them, but it turbocharges the possibilities. Because when you're in this realm, and Ibogaine is a really dirty molecule, you know, that little graphic I told you about, it was going through every area of the brain, just kind of mm. scrubbing it, resetting it. So my tastes were, when I came out of it, my tastes were like a, a child. So yeah. a seven-year-old child, I, I went and had some diet cola a few days later after my first experience and I spit it right back out into the sink. I just Mm. couldn't get it out of me fast enough. I've never smoked cigarettes, but if I had that first one would have tasted awful. I didn't Mm. like alcohol at all for years and years, just seeing a bottle or smelling it just kind of, I had this like uh, revulsion. So think about like, if you have a dog and you have like open bottle wine or beer and you hold it up to the dog. So you think it's like funny, you know, for them to smell, they're going to turn their head away and be repelled. That's how it was for me. So this is what it does. It, it resets your taste and a seven-year-old certainly isn't going to want to smoke a meth pipe, right. Or stick a needle. That's just not even in the universe of a seven-year-old kid. So 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 turbo chart, it makes it easier to do the personal work that needs to be done in order to sustain it. Because you have to still do that personal work. You have to do the personal work. You have to be ready. You have to come from, you have to learn to love yourself and not hate yourself. And that's a, that's a tall order when, when the client, all of them have been not behaving in a manner in line with their highest self, you know, their truest self. We were all born perfect, right? Then life happened. And, you know, and sometimes life is really rough and it it just depends on the person. It could be a trauma and not to trivialize it. And it's going to sound like I am, but just for an illustration, a trauma, depending on the person, can be not getting the cookie wanted when you're five years old Mm -hmm. to something really horrible, you know, being gang raped and kidnapped and, you know, who, who knows what else. I mean, there's a whole wide spectrum of bad things that can happen to people and the the personality of the person that it happens to and how they deal with it. Are they going to have an addiction or are they just going to close off? Are they going to become yeah. a workaholic and be, you know, emotionally unavailable? I mean, everybody is affected by these things. It's just the people that I treat and work with, you know, work with personally are people that it took them to really dark places. They just couldn't get out of on their own. Mm. And it's not because they were weak. It's certainly not because they were weak. Right. They just needed the right treatment at the, in the, have the right exposure and the right internal information at the right time when they were 
when they were just ready. So when someone is ready, it can be done. And I was the second time I was ready. The first time it showed me what was possible. So I knew the second time that it was probably going to work. Plus what happened to me where I just made that vow to myself, I will never do this again. And that's not true. I've taken low doses since then, but I would be, I would have to have a really good reason to do a large dose again. And I, don't have that so yeah yeah. and i hope you don't i hope you don't have another reason to do that so um i think i think that's great i appreciate you sharing all this what else do you want to get out there is there anything else you want to make sure that you you put out there and share with everybody before we wrap this up i would just say that plants are the way in in general we we i i'm so glad to be part of this psychedelic renaissance that's been going on for a while where society is demanding what what we should have that that the earth gives us and that the laws are changing and Mm -hmm. that there is more um sentience and i I should also say that at the center that i work at we do other if they stay long enough we do other medicines also so we start Mm -hmm. with the iboga or ibogaine depending on the protocol they choose and work with that for a bit and then if they stay long enough there's other medicines like ayahuasca Mm -hmm. Uh, 5-meo dmt they get pretty quickly after the the iboga or the ibogaine because that's such a great connecting um you know yeah. god molecule you know it just really yeah. especially those that are detoxing the detox process can be rough on someone physically and spiritually you know because they're basically they're getting their asses kicked yeah so um we bring them we bring them to other medicines to help them with the trauma you know what's the difference it- between iboga and ibogaine Oh, good question. So iboga is the original bark that comes from a shrub in the rainforest of Western Africa. And that was used traditionally by the Buwiti tribe. The pygmies pygmies before them actually discovered it, but Mm -hmm. aren't really known for it. It was used for coming of age ceremonies. And I don't know what age, but I would guess 13, bar mitzvah age, quinceanera, 15. But, Uh you know, when someone is going into adulthood and it was for them to meet their ancestors and to really get solid on who they are in this life and their their purpose in life and being part of the tribe and and being happy with themselves and meeting their ancestors. And Ibogaine was discovered, it was an extraction of that. So it's not all of the alkaloids. So when you're taking the root bark, you have to take lots of it. Capsules and capsules are traditionally in a traditional ceremony. It's taken by the spoonful and oh, it tastes awful. It really mm. tastes bad. Um, and it's usually you're taking so much in order to get a high dose that people usually do purge with Ibogaine. You're taking up for a flood dose, six to eight capsules, probably uh, okay. depending on the dosage and the size, age of the person. And that has some of the alkaloids stripped from it, but it works really well for the addiction. So a man by the name of Howard Lotsoff, young man, he was 19, about, oh gosh, 60, 70 years ago. He was a student on the East Coast and he was a heroin addict and he showed up at a friend's doorstep and he was a chemist and he was basically looking for something to trip balls. You know, maybe he couldn't uh-huh. find his heroin that night. I don't know. Anyway, his chemist friend hands him something out of his freezer and says, try this. So he did, and he went home and he took it, and he woke the next day when he was up and about. He thought, well, that was weird. You know, <laughs> that yeah. was the strangest thing that ever happened to me. And he noticed he didn't crave heroin anymore. Wow. So 
as as a drug user, he had other junkie friends. And so he gave it to six or seven other people and all but one stayed clean for a significant amount of time. And by that, I mean, like several years. Yeah. uh, From one dose. From from one dose, from a a large dose. And so he devoted his life to this. He developed patents on it, um, had it um, done in the Netherlands, you know, because obviously at at a certain point it wasn't legal here. All the funding was cut off. He got the... um, some studies done. They're not good enough. We need a lot more studies. I think uh-huh. Ibogaine will be the last thing. You know, it started with cannabis, then psilocybin. We're moving into MDMA now. I'm sure at some point ayahuasca will be studied. I don't know. I don't think it's been studied at this point, but we need we need accredited universities giving this um, um, weight to it. Yeah. So, not about, you know, some hippie with dreads and lots of tattoos and piercings that, you know, good high man. No, no, no. This is stuff that not saying there's anything wrong with that, by the way, but we need accredited universities like Johns Hopkins. They have a whole department devoted to it, Oxford in England. You know, they also have done some good studies. And so eventually we will have this for Ibogaine, but Howard Lotsoff was the guy that got it all started. And he's the reason that there are clinics around the world and underground providers around the world in places where it's not legal. Wow. Awesome. That's quite a story. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. (laughs) Pick up these things along the journey, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure do. Well, awesome. So anything else? No, just that, you know, the the work that I do, I I work with people personally. And I, I really wish I had had a me at my side when I did this, I didn't, and I still made it work. So at this point, people that go for eating disorders, they go to places where they may not know, and and they're still finding some success. So that's good. I just want to see in my lifetime, um, more attention brought to this and maybe hopefully in my lifetime, a clinic that's devoted just to people with eating disorders. I would like to live to be that old to see that happen because I'm sure I'll be in the middle of it. But for now, I'm just trying to spread information. Wonderful. Okay. So if, if somebody wants a you by their side, how do they how do they get in touch with you? Um, my name, Karen O'Neill, last name O apostrophe, capital N-E-E-L. Best way to find me is on Facebook. Okay. All right. I will put a link to that. Cool. Thank you. All right, Karen. Well, thank you so much for this. That was really insightful and, again, very unique. And I appreciate you coming here and spreading the word on this. I think you're going to help a lot of people. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time and for your devotion to spreading the word like you're doing every month. This is great work that you're doing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. That concludes this edition of the Stoned Ape Reports. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Stoned Ape Comedy and subscribe to our newsletter at www.stonedapecomedy.com. Again, thanks for listening and catch you next time, Stoned Apes.